You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. While Baptists may profess the unity of God's church, we are also dissenters from way back, ready to die on the hill of our unshakable convictions. Still, the vision of the church's future is the ascent of Mount Zion. As pilgrims of every tribe and tongue converge, the song on their lips, How Good It Is to Dwell in Unity. In his book, Baptist and the Catholic Tradition, Barry Harvey presents what this pilgrimage looks like for Baptists and others of Christ's divided body, pointing us to what draws us together toward the margin of culture and history with our suffering and risen Lord. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Barry Harvey, Professor of Theology in the Honors College of Baylor University, and author of Baptist and the Catholic Tradition, Reimagining the Church's Witness in the Modern World. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Harvey. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for the invitation. published in 2008 under a different title, Can These Bones Live? And um, it did not sell as well as either I or Baker Publishing had hoped that it would. Um, As uh, my editor, Dave Nelson, mentioned at one point, it came out in 2008 when the uh, bottom fell out of the market and nobody was buying books and the like. And they also were not happy with the way they had had created the cover and some other things like that. And so they actually approached me to do a second edition with some revisions and uh, paring it back a bit, um, and which I was very happy to do. Uh, And so, of course, it comes out in uh, 2020 when the pandemic hits. So uh, I sometimes joke with my friends that that, uh, the devil must not want it to come out because He's trying his hardest to keep it from being read. So uh, thankfully, these kinds of programs might help uh, get the book out. So essentially, um, I I did it willingly because Baker asked me to do, and I did make some revisions. They're not whole-scale revisions. Um, One of the things that I did do in the revision uh, that I wanted to do was to emphasize um, somewhat more uh, the role that that race plays in in uh, shaping American church life. I still didn't do nearly as much as I would have liked, um, uh, but as I say in the in the forward, um, I still stand by what I wrote in the earlier edition and um, uh, emphasize it in that regard. Excellent. Uh, 2008 is was definitely a different time than 2020 is. I, I, I imagine this uh, the arguments in this book perhaps land in a different kind of way than maybe they did 12 years ago. Well, in the introduction, you inform your reader first of well what the book isn't going to be, 
it isn't going to be a blueprint for the restoration of Catholicity, but instead you're going to commend an ecumenical posture. I really liked that phrase. So what is important about our posture or our stance before we start in on important ecumenical conversations? Um, excellent question. Uh, I sometimes think about ecumenical conversations in terms of, of them being located on a spectrum. Um, at one extreme is we don't need to listen to anyone else. Our church is perfect as it is. Obviously not there. At the other extreme is a reunited church uh, that communes together and thinks seriously together about things. Uh, that may or may not be an eschatological reality, but that's at the far end. We're somewhere in the middle of that. It's not necessarily the middle I, I uh, pointed to at the outset of the book, but we're in the middle of that. Uh, there are those going back to the other extreme, there are those who say, well, we Protestants in particular need to pay attention to some things in the Catholic tradition. Uh, and so we can draw upon that to, as it were, uh, address issues that a our strictly Protestant theology hasn't addressed, uh, which ain't bad, but it, it does leave some things to be desired. The next step over are those who um, are much more interested in, in, a, in a rigorous ecumenical conversation, but they start out with um, the conviction that whatever we are, in my case, Baptist, uh, this is where we're starting. And in the end, we want to still end up with something that's recognizably Baptist. Um, uh, and then the next spot over is where um, I see myself as someone who is a Baptist, who's been nurtured by that. My grandfather was a Baptist pastor during the Depression, tried and was unable to succeed keeping six daughters afloat during the Depression. But And then I was educated by Southern Baptists and the like. Um, but I want to take an ecumenical posture uh, to be open to what we have failed to understand about each other and to be open to learning from one another so that ultimately where I might ever end up may not be where I thought it would be at the beginning. So that's what I mean by an ecumenical posture. If you keep going, there's intercommunion and then full communion on the other end. Of the world. So that's kind of where I, I see myself. And that's why I adopt the phrase uh, an ecumenical posture rather than, um, as a few authors have, uh, Peter Lightheart, for example, uh, have kind of created a whole schema for how this is going to happen, uh, which to me is one of those things that's nice. And then it gets put on the shelf right away because that's not how human beings interact with one another, even under the best of intentions and the, and the guidance of Holy spirit in the, in the chaos of, of the church today. Yeah. It's sort of difficult to, to plan the way that the spirit will move in that way. <laughs> The yes. the middle you referenced that we are uh, you referenced a middle uh, to take a stance we need to know where we stand I reckon and you talk about the way that we are in the middle in your first chapter so what is the work that we need to do to chart our current position why can't we just 
take the book of Acts and just say, let's just start over again with Acts? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Acts is an important guide for us to follow, but uh, uh, this is not the first century. We're not Jews. We didn't walk with Jesus along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we have 2,000 years of history that we uh, inherit, good, bad, and indifferent. And, and uh, that's who we are. Uh, and so when, we, uh, when I talk about taking a stand, I basically say we need to avoid, again, two extremes. One, it's possible for human beings through reason or whatever uh, to attain uh, to, uh, if you will, to paraphrase Jesus' encounter with the devil in the wilderness, to a high mountain where we can see all the kingdoms and all the times and all the religions in the world at one time and make a decision. Neither are we all stuck in our own little valleys uh, where we have, we can't, we even can't talk to one another. And so the middle in this regard is we start from where we are. We're, we're Baptists, we're Christian. Um, even in, if we move beyond ecumenical to interreligious dialogue, we're Muslim, we're Catholic, whatever. Um, and we start there, um, and these kind of conversations start with a willingness, to, like I said, to be uh, educated, to learn, to engage one another, uh, not by setting aside or putting in blind trust our own convictions, but also not holding on to them so tightly that we suffocate them. And so that's that's the sense. Now, this one doesn't deal with a religious dialogue, but it does deal with uh, an ecumenical conversation in which um, uh, we do we are striving for a kind of unity that I think ultimately uh, is the kind of unity that Christ in the Gospels has called us to, um, uh, while at the same time recognizing uh, there's a long path in front of us. One of the things that I appreciate about your book is the way that it gives a kind of careful, not necessarily a names and dates and facts and events history, but rather a, uh, a genealogy of, of thought and perspectives that leads us to the place that we're at. While the division of the visible church is certainly what's in view in in the book, uh, the way that we're divided into exclusive communions, uh, this is something that you're focused on. Much of your account of the, the history of how we came to be here is how the church has been, your phrase is, dismembered uh, by social forces, political systems, philosophical paradigms that were imposed or adopted, absorbed. So in some broad terms, how does our division within the church and those pressures, those forces outside the church, how do they connect to one another? Well, um, it, it's probably easiest seen um, in the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation. Um, which, uh, and I cite people in the book, both Catholic and, and Protestant historians who say in, in many ways the Reformation was necessary. But at the same time, what comes out is 
uh, a fractured church, and especially with Protestants, it, this is not absent among the Catholic uh, side, but among Protestants, there quickly develops a kind of identity uh, between what it means to be Christian and what it means to belong to a certain uh, nation. Um, while it's no longer truth, historically, if you think about it, what nationality comes to mind when you think of Lutheran? Well, you think of Germans, maybe Scandinavians. When you think of Reformed, what do you think of? You think of the Scots, you think of the English Puritans, America, and the like. Um, uh, and even we, that has oftentimes forces think we think Catholic, we think Italians and Irish and Spanish and, 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 the, and Polish and the like. Um, and so just, you know, can, the confusion of those identities is part of it. And then as uh, things like modern economies, industrialization, um, these kind of things develop quickly as well. Uh, and and, and uh, churches have to find ways of either making their peace with these forces or find ways to engage them critically and constructively. Um, not to jump ahead, but this is part of what I talk about in the in the final chapter of Artisans of an Age to Come. Um, we have to do business with the world, but how we do business with it, um, what kinds of things are conducive to the integrity of our Christian witness, and what things are a hindrance to it, and to think seriously that we might have not have always thought about those things in the way we should. I, I appreciate you, you bringing up the, the that last bit, talking about doing business, because I, I, I kept thinking about Tertullian's, uh, Tertullian's work on idolatry, where he deals with the question of whether or not a Christian furniture maker can build chairs for a pagan temple. You know, and mm -hmm. the kinds of questions that he asks in that work are not the sorts of things that uh, that we necessarily bring to our economic and uh, labor activity is what that that work of labor seems um, to overlap very little with uh, our our sense of who we are as Christians, so long as what we're doing is legal. Mm -hmm. No, no, and oftentimes we have we have seeded. Uh, the kinds of vocations, the kind of professions that we uh, enter into um, almost entirely on that question uh, of, um, you know, is it legal? Without asking, is it consistent with, is it coherent with uh, our calling in Christ? Um, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his ethics volume says, that which is open to the coming of Christ. Uh, one of the things I mentioned towards the end of the book is the way when Augustine was baptized, he decided he could no longer practice uh, the the uh, profession that he had been trained for, uh, which is a, was, for, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, what we call the law profession. Uh, he calls it a uh, he can't stay one more hour in a, what he called a professional chair of lying. In other words, not seeking the truth and those kind of things. I'm not saying you can't be in the law profession. But, you know, one of the things I wish we could do with our young people is engage them in conversation. Which professions and which uses of the professions 
are open to the coming of Christ and which tend to close ourselves off to him. Um, part of the uh, cleverness, if you will, of, of modern political and social and economic life is to divide us up into our lives into different fragments such that we follow a different uh, set of, of guidelines or principles or rules in different ones. So in my family life, I'm a good Christian, uh, in my case, a good Christian father and husband. But when I go to work, the, the rules of the marketplace apply. And when I enter into politics, you know, the rough and tumble, Ma oh, we're most definitely into a Machiavellian understanding of politics. That's what works. And and uh, um, uh, again, uh, there's so much of the Christian tradition that has the uh, raised eyebrow about all that. And yet we we tend to do it so easily in our day and time. And we don't ever pause. And it's scary to think of this, uh, to, to pause and say, maybe that's not the best way not only to live our own lives, but to raise our own children and to, uh, to, to, in that way, to enter into uh, our common life together. Uh, if I can, I'll just give one example. You know, it, um, uh, I talked about that the legal profession is certainly capable of offering op opportunities uh, for uh, engaging the social world in, wider world in very uh, in ways very consistent with uh, openness to Christ but not all of them all of them you know if 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 it's not serving the common good if it's not serving the least among us um, if it's not serving the people that Jesus talks about at in Matthew 25 at the end of the age we might want to think is that is that the best use we might want to do, what Augustine did in his own time and, and ask about those kinds of questions and, and, and face, face the hard, hard answers sometimes. Yeah. I, I appreciate the, the way that that turns the, turns the light onto those, those conversations that we're used to only thinking of in terms of uh, pragmatic, pragmatic logic and economic uh, self-interest. One of the things that I appreciate about your genealogy of how we got to where we are is you make use of uh, the ideas of, of some important writers like uh, like Charles Taylor and uh, his his observations about the secular age, um, also adopting some of the critiques of the relationship of the church and government power, especially coercive power from uh, that have come from you know. You know, thinkers today, writers today, who, who identify with the Anabaptist tradition, but you never collapse the narrative into, and this is why it's the fault of 17th century Protestants, or this is why it's the fault of Constantine. <laughs> yes, we it all of this is part of our past. Um, uh, it's probably a good thing we don't know too much about our ancestors past our grandparents or perhaps great-grandparents. I suspect we would be kind of embarrassed about the, the many black sheep in our own fam you know, uh, actual families. It's the same with Christianity. Um, um, you know, there's, there's reasons why 
uh, how the church responded to what Constantine did, uh, uh, why they did what they did. Um, in the in the fifth, sixth, and seventh century, when the Roman Empire in the Western world was falling apart, the one institution that was still pretty coherent was the church. What was a bishop to do if he's seeing people hungry, being attacked, all that? You know, you start saying, okay, you know, uh, Duke, you protect these people, and so and so, we gotta feed them and stuff like that. And so you get involved in these kinds of things. But of course like most drugs, literal and, vert and uh, metaphorical, power is a drug uh, and access to power and access to uh, wealth and prestige is, is a heady uh, elixir. And often uh, that's where the church forgets its first calling, its first love. Uh, and that's part of um, uh, what I'm, I'm trying to address here. And hey, uh, how did Michael Jackson put it? The man in the mirror. <laughs> you know, you have to have a conversation with that person first. So it's not just, as you said, the other guy. Yeah. I, mean, I know that there's, there's, there's a right way to look back at those moments and, and connect them to our moment and see how that they, how they opened a door that, you know, opened a Pandora's box even. Um, but at the same time say, well, this 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 tradition within Christianity, they are the heirs of that Constantinian uh, compromise, or they are the heirs of those uh, early modern secularizers. So that's the tradition of, of the church that we don't need to have a conversation with because it's their fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very I, much. I, Go ahead. No, no. I, edit, edit, edit my edit my dithering out, Britt, please. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say? Well, it's um, we learn things uh, even in the church's failures. Uh, I had a colleague once who said, you know, everyone can be of use to other people, even if it says a bad example. Um, don't do what this person did. Um, uh you know, at some point, hopefully the church will begin to listen that uh, when we make friends with um, the well-to-do and, and, and the uh, uh, powerful, um, we tend not to think in the ways of Christ. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm sure people, when they see the phrase Baptist and the Catholic tradition, are surprised when I open with a quote by Pope Benedict XVI. Mm -hmm. to the effect that, that church can no longer expect to be the form of life for a whole society, which we did at one time. Uh, and to want to do that, to want to be that, um, first of all, is, I think, a, uh, a futile effort. It's, that's not going to happen certainly anytime soon. But also, do we want to be that? Should we want to be that? Um, again, what Pope Benedict, uh, prior to his elevation as Pope, said um, uh, we, we should not uh, attempt to re recover what was the status quo, but he, as he says, be spiritually prepared when necessary to stand over against the world in solidarity with the poor and the persecuted. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, 
For many years here at Baylor University, I taught Old Testament. And when you deal with the prophets, you keep hearing this refrain over again about the poor and the uh, orphans and the widow. And I continually told my students, and I continually say to my students, um, uh, if you will, to use an American example, the poor, the orphans, the elderly, are the uh, bird in the birdcage that would be taken down into the mines. And as long as Tweety Bird is sitting on the swing, singing away, the miners knew they were fine. But once he fell flat on the bottom of the cage, it was time to get out of there. And, the, and so, you know, when the canary died, um, and when we see the, these people um, suffer, uh, and and not suffer because of anything that's beyond human control, but in, par in large part because of what humans have done. Um, human beings, uh, especially the followers of Christ, the members of Christ's body, are called upon by their Lord uh, to start thinking uh, precisely from that perspective. Um, again, to quote Bonhoeffer, uh, to look at, at the world and to look at history from the perspective of those who suffer, who are underneath. And indeed, that is the perspective of Christ himself, I would argue, uh, in so many ways. Yeah. One of the big images, uh, big themes in your book is how that we can, how we can re-embrace that vision of ourselves in the world uh, that helps us to be small <laughs> and, yeah. not, and not and not to be at the center. Um, Wanderers at the world's end. That sounds like a, a Mad Max movie, but you keep pairing apocalypse and pilgrimage throughout the book, and these themes are or should be integral to our identity. So, how do we find ourselves as apocalyptic pilgrims? Uh, wanderers at the world's end, and how does that show us our way forward out of the middle that we find ourselves in? Yeah, this is this is a, a really important element in uh, uh, how we think about our current time and and uh, uh, and our calling. Um, one of the things I uh, allude to briefly, uh, I'm going to restate it in a somewhat different way as in the book, but it very much coincides, is we have bought into a kind of popular sense of what apocalypse is. You know, it's the uh, the latest James Cameron movie, if you will, it's it, and the like. Whereas recent biblical studies, primarily New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, um, the category of apocalyptic deals foremost with a way of interpreting Christ's life and passion as the disclosure uh, of God's uh, rectifying action, God's action to set things right in the world. Um, uh, it's, it has to do with the incursion of God's power into the world with effect. It's not, uh, and if you, most of you, will probably know that the, in Greek, the word apocalypsus is translated typically into English as revelation. But revelation is not the disclosure of previously hidden secrets. 
If you're looking for that, read P.D. James's mystery novels. It's rather an initiation of a new state of affairs in the world. Uh, it's a making way for God's interests in the world, as well as making known uh, how God has set to rights the human condition as a new creation. And again, the focal point for that is crucifixion and resurrection. Um, uh, crucifixion doesn't have to do with just the narrow question of our, our eternal uh, destiny, though it certainly does. Crucifixion resurrection uh, uh, can best or can well be understood, if I may put it in a, in a popular phrase by Martin Luther King, who said that the uh, arc of the of the of the universe is long, but it's bent towards justice. Um, I would uh, put it somewhat differently that the arc of the universe is long, but it's bent towards justice as that is understood by death and resurrection. Um, um, and this is not something that that uh, is not going to make you wealthy and wise. Uh, as Charles Dickens put it in uh, A Christmas Carol when his, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge's nephew was trying to convince him to come to dinner, uh, that Christmas had never put any gold into his pocket, but it has done him good. That's the kind of thing that Christ's incursion has done. Um, um, and though we are called upon uh, to engage this world and to seek its welfare, uh, I'm quoting here Jeremiah, seek the welfare, the, the commonwealth of the place that God has sent you, uh, because in its welfare, uh, you will find your own author. And that's very true. And so we, uh, as foreigners, as, as visitors from a foreign land, a colony of, of, of strangers and aliens, uh, we live in the world. We make use of what's needed for the body and for other areas of earthly life. We're willing to be, serve. We need to be honorable and just and gentle and quiet. Uh, we are called upon to be subject to uh, authority. Um, if you remember, Martin Luther King protested against unjust laws, but was uh, submitted to their authority, uh, which is where we get his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, but at the same time, um, we remember the words of Hebrews. Uh, that we await the city that is yet to come, the city that, that God has built. And it is there our allegiance lies, and it is there that uh, we await uh, the coming of the Lord. And until then, uh, we, we seek to live, to serve, but also uh, because whatever the worldly powers are, uh, uh, they tend to want to be acknowledged as supreme, and that's what we can't give them. Mm. I feel like that's a particular move, uh, a particular stance, and, an, and a self-identifying attitude that the Baptist heritage was better at living out um, in its early centuries. Uh, I'm thinking of... of people like John Bunyan who would do time just for preaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, at, at our inception, we, we very much had that notion. Uh, 
Um, but as the, the pressure to conform on the part of the Church of England led up a bit and people were uh, able to enter into commerce and to, uh, positions of power, we basically did as Baptists what so many others did, and that is increasingly um, find our uh, way and, and to, uh, uh, as I put it, um, uh, at the end of chapter three, I believe it is, and it's been a long time since I've read my own stuff, we, we, we more and more became at home in the world. Um, and, and the more yeah. at home you feel in the world, the more you'll adopt its ways, its standards, its patterns of reasoning. Um, and uh, that's that has never uh, shown itself to be uh, conducive to a, a life of discipleship and a life of, of service and a life uh, that is patterned around death and uh, crucifixion and resurrection. spend uh towards the towards the end of the book not the not the complete end but uh i appreciated this section where you dealt with uh, especially the role of sacraments in this communal journey that we take as 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 pilgrims um the baptism and the eucharist so how do they shape us for this journey and along the way are there historically are there ways that historically Baptist practices or explanations of these sacraments have done better or worse jobs of securing that rightful place? Yeah, the among the very earliest Baptists, there was a rather substantial affirmation of the role that uh, both baptism and, and Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion, however you want to call it properly played and with an, uh, with an understanding that it wasn't just a memorial meal. It wasn't just for us to remember something that, that God through the work of the Holy spirit, Christ through the work of the Holy spirit was present and shaping us. Um, but we also uh, inherited uh, primarily from some of our Puritan forebears, this suspicion of all things popish, uh, and Catholic, um, and and indeed, tragically, far too often, in my opinion, we uh, decided matters on that kind of antithetical basis. If it was Catholic, it couldn't be good. Um, I and I grew up with that. I really did. I mean, um, I, I opened chapter five with a, a recollection when I was a college freshman as one who had been uh, formed to think that an experience of God was a, an inward, emotionally charged experience. Uh, but I remember thinking one day, I was sitting in church and wondering about it, and, and uh, I realized everything that I had previously connected, well, that must be the presence of God, could be caused by very mundane, earthly things, including the air conditioning, for all that matter. Um, <laughs> And uh, or the, you know, the feelings I had with a date the night before or whatever. So um, I struggled with this and, and 
through, uh, especially through seminary and graduate school, more and more was reintroduced to that. And then towards the end of my time in graduate school, I was commended by someone whose uh, wisdom I respected a lot that I should go over to a new monastery, an Anglican monastery that had been established in Durham, North Carolina. And there, uh, to enter in a, uh, a, a sustained engagement with uh, particularly Eucharistic practice. So for, for several months, I went to the Eucharist service five mornings a week. Well, when you first do this as a Baptist, unfamiliar with liturgical celebrations, you know, you're constantly trying to keep up with what, you know, should be standing, sitting, responding, that kind of stuff. Um, but after a while, uh, and yet, again, just to recall, uh, I grew up in an understanding of Baptist that, you know, you celebrated the Lord's Supper once every three months, whether you needed to or not. Uh, there was, <laughs> except yeah. the fact that Jesus commanded it, which is not unimportant, but there, you know, the rationale for it. Um, and so I went. I was going, uh, like I said, five mornings a week, most weeks. But the novelty that, that it comes with when you first are engaged in this kind of liturgical practice wears off. And as I, I tell in the chapter, um, uh, there one day, um, I think it was a Tuesday, but I'm not absolutely sure, um, my participation in the, in the Lord's Supper that day in the, in the monastery could have been the first entry in the dictionary under the entry of perfunctory and all my popish anti-Catholic Baptist uh, scruples were raised by that. Well, I went about the rest of the day uh, and I recall nothing from the day. It must've been a very mundane average day. Nothing remarkable happened, but it hit me at the end of the day as I was reflecting over it that what had been happening in the Eucharistic service over those months had changed the way I engaged with the world, uh, how I interacted with people, how the demands of charity and mercy and forbearance uh, uh, had ruined me, as it were. Uh, <laughs> no, not really. I mean, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's why it's important. It's not for the intense experience, uh, the zing, if you will, that I had come to be understand. Um, uh, you might not think anything happens at all until later on you realized, wow, the spirit has been working on me all along through these things. And so this is what uh, I base my reflections on the importance of these, not because they work magically or, or, or the like, they don't. I mean, one can be baptized and go to communion twice a day for their entire life and still be a miserable uh, excuse for a human being. But nonetheless, this is where you come together and where you are formed and with other aspects of Christian faith, prayer, scripture reading, um, uh, reading about the lives of, of great persons, saints in the past, uh, education, formation, uh, engaging in works of mercy. All these together form individuals, yes, but they form the body as well, the whole corporate body of, of the congregation. Um, 
And it's only in that kind of context when uh, you become increasingly aware that your life is not your own. It never was, but now you realize it's been reclaimed by the crucified and resurrected one that um, you you be able to look at your life and to look at it honestly, uh, both as individuals and as a corporate body. And so that's that's why I put the attention on it and realize uh, this is part of my what I've learned from my our Catholic um, elder brothers and sisters, if you will that these kinds of embodiments mm -hmm. tie us together um, uh, in ways that are not easy to shake off. Mm. Well, as I look at uh, our time, uh, we're coming to, to the end of the time that uh, we had scheduled for our conversation, and I want to be respectful of that. But I also want to be welcoming on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, we show hospitality by giving our guests the last word. What would you like our listeners to be considering as we wrap up our conversation? One of the things I have told my students for a while and uh, continue to do so is there is a kind of... Uh, Odd things about human beings um, as a result of being created by God, but also living in a fallen world. They're, they're almost antithetical truths. They are antithetical in many ways. On the one hand, because we're created in God's image, we want to believe what is true. There are a few things more onerous to us, more uh, hateful to us, then to come to the conclusion we believe something that wasn't true. But the other truth is, because we live in a fallen world and that runs all the way through us, our tendency is to want what we believe to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, and that shift from wanting to believe what is true to wanting what we believe to be true is one of the hardest things to overcome. And so when I talk about an ecumenical posture, I talk about starting from where you already stand, from your own ecclesial identity and, and uh, uh, where you have come so far in your Christian journey as both an individual person, as member of a congregation and a wider tradition. But then be ready to learn, particularly from those others in your own uh broader tradition, um, that um, it's all right to be wrong if it's in service uh, uh, to Christ and to in our quest for the, for the truth. Um, I have on my bulletin board in front of my desk a prayer by Thomas Merton, uh, uh, an important a Christian Catholic author of the mid part of the 20th century. And he, he starts his prayer that, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain will or will end, nor will I, do I really know myself. There's that image of a pilgrim that's still trying to find her way, his way, and to find oneself. And the fact that I think I'm following you well, does not mean 
that I'm actually doing so. But I believe the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. And and so in, in taking up this ecumenical stance that I've articulated, you hope the desire is to be open, to learn, to be corrected, to help teach others. It's not a one-way street. Um, and ultimately, uh, I conclude with something that Augustine says right at the beginning of his book on the Trinity, the title of which in English is On the Trinity, <laughs> which he says, my friend, uh, if you are as convinced as I am about something, go forward with me. If you determine that, that you have fallen away, come back to me. If you think I have fallen away, call me back to you. And together we will walk the streets uh, of peace and uh, oriented towards God, who, and we should seek his face always. And so that ultimately is not just my intent, my purpose in writing, but ultimately my prayer as a, as a theologian whose primary responsibility is not to the academy. I'm appreciative I have a job and can support my family, but to the church. That's excellent. I, re I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Harvey. This has been uh, this has been a good time, and I'm glad that it finally worked out and our technical our technical issues got solved. <laughs> Very good. Well, I thank you for the invitation. I look forward uh, to uh, hearing from you and and to uh, tune in to others as they uh, talk about the kinds of things they're interested in in this strange journey of learning to be a good human being. Excellent. Well, dear listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have as well. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Barry Harvey, uh, the author of Baptist and the Catholic Tradition, Reimagining the Church's Witness in the Modern World. That book is from Baker Academic, and there will be a link to it in the show notes for this episode when they post on our blog. Our blog is christianhumanist.org. Can, if you want to leave comments, you can do that with the show notes. You can also send email directly to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook. We're on Twitter at CH Radio Network. So those are all ways that you can get in touch with us. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Profiles podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.